This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 194, Redemption and Redemption 2. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week, we watch an episode of Star Trek, or occasionally two episodes of Star Trek, taking it or them apart for message or messages, moral or morals and meaning or meanings, and seeing whether they hold up decades down the road. This week, Redemption 1, the one where Gowron takes control of the Klingon High Council and Worf works to regain his family honor. Then, Redemption 2, the one where the Klingon Empire nearly tears itself apart with the help from the Romulans and no help from the Federation. In a moment, we're going to do all the stuff that we normally do, but first, a dramatic reading by John Champion. Here in our little village of Kronos... You might say every one of us is a Klingon on the roof, trying to scratch out an honorable battle without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You might ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? Well, we stay up there because Kronos is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Redemption! See, Ken... This and Fiddler on the Roof are the same thing. You think so? It's the same story. Yeah. An entire culture is under siege from outside forces that threaten to destroy their way of life. They have to decide if it's best to uphold tradition for the sake of tradition or forge new ways of living. It's same, same thing, different music. Now, is that the same show that brought you and there are no cats in the Federation? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> <Pretty safe. laughs> sure, yeah. that is not the same thing. That's uh, that was what it was that an American tale. I and see. I was so sure that they were the same. <laughs> you I, you I thought, thought it was, yeah, thought yeah. It was that's Fiddler on Kronos. Did you? Yeah. If you know musical theater like me, then <laughs> you know. Which there's probably three of us in our audience who do. Yeah, and, I would uh, imagine yeah. so. Yeah, you, you. I mean, I actually knew what you were talking about. I am ashamed to say, though, I've never seen Fiddler on the Roof. Oh. Oh, starring Dr. Hans Zarkov. Yes, Topol. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, right. not to be confused with the uh, uh, teeth whitening, uh, tooth polish. No, no, even though they both have one name. They do. Uh, they do. Yeah. yeah, but then yeah. again, so does Sting, and you don't confuse <laughs> them, do you? Nope, all right. not at all. <laughs> so I said we're going to do the stuff that we're going to do, and we are. Uh, that mm-hmm. starts with me letting people know how to get in touch with us. If you have a favorite Star Trek musical memory you'd like to share... Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love that. Our phone number is 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Today, Ken, we have to welcome a new sponsor to uh, Mission Log. I hate when you say that. We don't have to. We get to. 
Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> I am so excited about this. I, You know, I am such a nerd with this one. It is the official Star Trek Starships collection yeah. uh, at st-starships.com slash mission log. So remember that. Write it down. Uh, uh, tattoo it somewhere if you have to. This is so cool. This is a subscription collection of amazing miniature starships from actually all of Star Trek, from the original series up through every spinoff series, and then even going into Star Trek 09 and up to Star Trek Beyond. So they just keep making them. As long as you keep buying them, they keep making them. Um, They are officially authorized by CBS Studios um, from... Eagle Moss Collections. That's the the maker, the developer, the manufacturer of this, and it, it's it's the coolest thing. It, it yeah. is, so these little spaceships, and um, we we got to play with some. Yes. Yes. It's, I, it, it, here's the thing. I mean, we just sound like a couple of geeks, completely nerding out, and that's because we are. Yes. So we got. I mean, because you know we're going to be telling you about it. They were kind enough to send us a few ships. I have a uh, I have a Klingon bird of prey. Mm-hmm. Which has always been my favorite Star Trek starship, but really? I but like I learned a lot about it. Yeah, I've always loved the design, and I think I know why actually. Because with each ship, which is awesome looking, mm-hmm. uh, you also get a magazine talking about it, and it, it it's yes. both an in universe magazine, like I mean, talking about it in universe, and then talking about how it first came about, talking about its production, things like that. Like I did not know that the Bird of Prey didn't show up until Star Trek Three. And I guess if yes, I had thought about everything right. that we've done to this point, I could have figured that <laughs> you, out. You would have known. <laughs> but I didn't realize. And I was just reading about it earlier. And it was like this. It, it, it's amazing to find out about all the different stuff that they do. Like originally, they had this really neat idea for how a Klingon ship would, would decloak. And mm-hmm. so what would happen actually is the skeleton would appear first and then the interior rooms and then the outer hull. And then somebody, you know, somewhere in the process said, you know, if it took that long for it to decloak, they just shoot it. and that's so neat to think about like people going hey hold on a second um also it was an articulated model it wasn't like one of those things where they okay so you move it and you take a picture then you move it then you take a picture they actually Mm -hmm. built a motorized Mm -hmm. model and the reason that you never see the wings move in next gen is because by the time they were shooting for that uh, the motors almost never worked anymore didn't work (laughs) which i mean and it's stupid little things like that I mean, that that make what you get with all of this so incredible. Plus, the ships themselves are just... The, the right size. They're not huge models that you're not going to find room to uh, to store them anywhere. Right. Uh, but they're big enough that you can see plenty of detail. And they've got a bit of heft to them. They're not just like cheap plastic. I mean, it is a metallic resin, so they've got a nice feel to them, a nice weight. Yeah. They are so perfectly detailed. They use reference from actual CG models used in production and then back to reference photos of original studio models. So the, the level of detail on these is absolutely incredible. Comes with a display base and like you said it comes with a magazine that explains everything about the ship that you got you can start your collection today for five bucks not even five bucks can 495 and that includes free shipping for the enterprise 1701d and from there on you will get two ships every month delivered to your door 
It's kind of like Christmas every other week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And here's the best part about it. So everybody starts from ship number one, which is the Enterprise D, and then they keep going in order to collect every ship. You can stop your subscription at any time. Um, There is no downside to this at all. This is one of the coolest things I've ever seen, and I'm so glad that they are a part of Mission Log now. So please remind people where they can get this amazing collection, Ken. Uh, The website is st hyphen starships.com you don't spell hyphen by the way it's st hyphen starships.com forward slash mission log uh which is how they know that you heard about them through us which of course makes everybody happy and and seriously do check them out because look even if you just get the d the 1701d and then council you've got one of the coolest little collectibles around um (laughs) I personally say stay in at least until week three, though, because who doesn't need a Klingon bird of prey in their life? Yeah. I think you and I are just going to be chasing each other around in Vegas going pew, 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 pew. Pretty much. (laughs) That's it. Which we did last year, too. But this time we'll have little ships. Yeah, even better. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) So thanks to to Eagle Moss for supporting the show. And please do check them out. ST-starships.com slash mission log. All right, Ken, if you'll indulge me, I've got a little trivia for today's shows. A little trivia? A little trivia. (laughs) So, Redemption was written by Ronald D. Moore. He's quickly becoming the go-to Klingon guy at this point, and now he's getting ready to pick up the pieces laid down by Sins of the Father. Now, when he wrote Redemption, he had no idea how it was going to end. So just like Best of Both Worlds, first part was written and filmed, and then everyone went on a hiatus. Everybody went on their summer break. So uh, this story would have actually been uh, the season ender for season three going into season four, but that was put off when Best of Both Worlds was developed. Um, and by the way, uh, the, the titles are, uh, oddly enough, Redemption and Redemption 2, not Part 1 or Part 2. So that that's kind of stepping out of how Star Trek usually numbers uh, multi-part episodes. Part 1 was directed by Cliff Bull. Part 2 was directed by David Carson. And um, let's talk about cool ships. Well, because we already talked about some cool ships before in our ad. But let's talk about cool ships right now. There are a lot mentioned in these episodes but there are some noteworthy historic names i always like to point those out we have the endeavor of course there is the space shuttle endeavor which is now here in uh, california at the california science museum um there's also the 18th century British naval research ship called the Endeavor, which was captained by James Cook. We have the Akagi, named after the flagship of the Japanese fleet during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Hmm, that's an interesting choice for a ship name. Yeah. Um, incidentally, the Akagi was sunk at the Battle of Midway by the Enterprise. And the Hornet. Um, and the Hornet was also part of this blockade created by Picard. And this was a naming scheme done on purpose for this show, as Ron Moore wanted to show some Earth unity in the future. See also the Merrimack when it comes to using quote-unquote enemy ships in this modern forward-looking fleet of the future. 
We have the Excalibur, uh, which was named before, as well as the Goddard and one of my favorites, the Thomas Paine. Uh, let's also not forget the Sutherland, commanded by Data here, but originally the name of Horatio Hornblower's ship, those novels being a big inspiration for Star Trek. We also have the Hermes, a Greek god associated with, well, just about everything but uh, trade, thievery, athletics, invention, boundaries, um, travel, uh, also a great line of French luxury goods. So if you find yourself in need of those things, look up the Hermes nearest you. And, of course, we also have the Tiananmen, named after the Tiananmen Square in China, where in 1989, a massive protest was thwarted by the government at the time, resulting in numerous deaths. This was the show's way of honoring those people. Now, um, we do want to talk about a quick little production note here. It's well known, but worth pointing out that during the filming of part one, Ronald Reagan visited the sets of Star Trek The Next Generation. There are well-known stories of his quips comparing Klingons to Congress, plus his interactions with Gene Roddenberry. You can take a look at those online uh, if you just search Ronald Reagan and Gene Roddenberry. There's a nice story about how uh, Gene dropped his cane that he was using to walk with. Ronald Reagan bent down to pick it up and hand it back to him. This was a scene witnessed by a lot of the cast, and they thought that was a really class move. Now, let's talk about guest stars. So, the three that we have back that we already know about, Denise Crosby as Sela, um, it's worth noting that she basically came up with this idea of the character of Sela. So it might sound a little weird that an actor would be able to have that much influence, but it, it is worth pointing out, you know, she had a good uh, relationship with the production staff of Star Trek The Next Generation over the years, and uh, she had this idea of why wouldn't Tasha Yar, who went back in time during yesterday's Enterprise, have a daughter, or what would happen? to her so that whole thing was her pitch and they were able to work that into the story of redemption we also have robert o'reilly back as gauron we have tony todd back as kern now we have some new characters to talk about we have fleet admiral shanti played by arkansas born fran bennett an actress with a diverse background including soap operas feature films and tv she had guest roles on Boston Legal, ER Community, a recurring role on Quantum Leap. Later, she took on the job heading the performance department at the California Institute of the Arts. Timothy Carhart plays Lieutenant Hobson. He's been in Mad Men, Frasier, 30-something, CSI, and 24 in recurring roles. Also appeared in Miami Vice, Dream On, one of my favorites from HBO, and the movie The Hunt for Red October, along with uh, Ghostbusters and Witness early in his career. Wait, wait. Yeah? He's also the person upon whom all of the action in Thelma and Louise hinges. <laughs> very much so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were going down one road. He very much. Well, mm -hmm. their actions regarding him very much started sure. them down another. So not, but it's a good point. Not the star of that movie, but not, not by a long shot. But without <laughs> him, it's like yeah. without him, it's just a buddy movie. Mm -hmm. uh, as Captain Larg, we have Mike Haggerty, kind of a bigger than life presence. He's from Chicago. He went through the Second City program there. Had a recurring role on Friends. Uh, he was on Lucky Louie and the George Carlin Show. Movie credits include Dick Tracy, Speed 2. And by the way, that Second City connection was very good for him. He appears in Wayne's World, So I Married an Axe Murderer, and Austin Powers, A Spy Who Shagged Me. Um, we will see him one more time on Next Generation, and he later provided a voice for the Star Trek Klingon video game. Ben Slack 
plays Cattell, uh, many soap opera credits in his early career, then on to all sorts of guest star roles, T.J. Hooker, Dukes of Hazard, Moonlighting, that's for you, Ken, Hill Street Blues. Uh, he had a recurring role on The Practice uh, a few years before he passed away in 2004. J.D. Cullum shows up here as the young Klingon Toral. Now, he's the son of John Cullum, a well-known actor for uh, uh, film and stage and TV, uh, somebody who I like very much, who I saw on Broadway years ago. Uh, now, his son, J.D., has made a name for himself, working constantly in front of the camera and on stage. Credits include Lois and Clark, NYPD Blue, Chicago Hope, The Mentalist, Mad Men, and the movie Glory, to name but a few. Barbara March plays Lyrissa. She actually appears in Star Trek in various incarnations from uh, spinoffs to video games. And that actually makes up most of her career, other than a handful of other TV guest appearances and some small movie work. Uh, but Lyrissa will return. And Gwyneth Walsh is Batura. Gwyneth has a pretty extensive career. She was born in Canada, racked up numerous stage credits there and in the U.S., Prior to Star Trek, she appeared on Captain Power, The New Twilight Zone, L.A. Law, and Alienation. After Trek, you may have seen her in NYPD Blue, and she was a regular on the Canadian series Da Vinci's Inquest. And she, along with Barbara March, they will both show up in later episodes of Star Trek. No cliffhanging this week. John and Ken are jumping straight from the end of Season 4 to the start of Season 5. The Enterprise is on its way to the Klingon homeworld, where Picard will oversee the installation of Galron as the leader of the Klingon High Council. Picard served as arbiter, leading to the choice of Galron as leader. While they're there, Picard thinks Worf should clear his family name. Worf says it's not time yet, but Picard says it is so totally time. Worf accepted this commendation to keep the Klingon Empire from tearing itself apart, but, says the captain, it is a lie, and lies have to be challenged. And Worf's sick of the whole thing anyway, so why not? The Enterprise is joined by its escort, the Klingon ship Bortas. Only, no escort ship was scheduled. Hey, it's Galron! And he says they have very little time to prevent a Klingon civil war. Because with the Klingons, it's always something. Act 1. The family of Duras is not pleased not ruling the Klingon Empire. Duras died in disgrace, which means his whole family should live in disgrace. But their power and influence outweigh that. They have supporters on the council. Galron says honor will soon have no meaning. Spearheading the campaign are Lursa and Bator, the sisters of Duras. Females cannot rule the Klingon Empire, so it's unclear what they're up to, but they're up to something. What Gowron wants from Picard is muscle, a pledge to bag his installation above and beyond the role of Arbiter. Picard says that's not going to happen, though he will make sure the Klingon law is followed. Gowron fears that that might not be enough. Picard is on high alert now. He tells Riker of the Duras family plans and of his concern that they could be backed by the Romulans. Meanwhile, Worf is escorting Gowron to the transporter room and talking over his dishonor. He tells Gowron that he accepted discommendation to keep the Empire together. It was the family of Duras that betrayed everyone to the Romulans at Kittimer, not the House of Moog. The Council knew this, but they took the easy path, let Worf take the blame, and maintain the status quo. So how about restoring my family honor? Gowron says it can't be done. The grasp of Duras reaches out from the grave. Much of the council is still loyal to Duras, and Gowron needs the council's support to survive. A disappointed Worf goes for a bit of target practice and is joined, surprisingly, by Guinan. 
She basically tells him not to feel too bad about not knowing what to do. He's really just learning to be a Klingon. Also, she kicks his backside at target practice. Something in the talk did what it was supposed to do, though. Worf requests a leave of absence, presumably to win back his family's honor. Request granted, and he's on his way. Act 2. New Klingon ship! Worf's aboard the one captained by his brother, Kern. He tells Kern of Gowron's refusal to restore the family honor, but Kern doesn't care. If Lursa and Bator don't kill Gowron, he will. The Duras family cannot be allowed to rule. Gowron is weak. Everyone else is corrupt. Kern plans to kill them all and start over. Well, Kern and a few others. Worf vetoes the plan. Gowron should be the leader, and they should support him. And since Worf is the older brother, what he says goes. It's a Klingon thing. But, says Worf, we're not going to back Gowron just yet. We're going to wait until he's about to lose, then offer him the win, if he'll restore our family honor. Kern says he'll convince his compatriots to back Gowron. Meanwhile, Captain Picard is down on the Klingon homeworld installing Gowron. Or he would be, except what? Lursa and Bator show up with a snotty Klingon teenager who says he is Toral, son of Duras. Assuming he is who they say he is, the Arbiter, that would be Picard, will have to consider his claim that he should lead the High Council. Surprise, by the way, it turns out the Duras are working with the Romulans, including... Remember that shadowy Romulan hanging out with Mr. Buttons a couple of episodes ago? She's back, all menacing and shadowy. Act 3. Kern got his pals to back Gowron, now Worf's working with Data to get everything Starfleet has on the Duras family involvement in the Kittimer Massacre. Well, he was until Picard found out. Dude, are you trying to get the Federation in a war with everybody? Non-involvement is our whole shtick, and you're getting us so involved. But let's face it, I'm involved. What am I doing arbitrating the leadership of the Klingon High Council? Tell you what, I'm going to WikiLeak all of the Kittimer files. Everyone can have them, but no more help for anyone. Worf is on his way out of the meeting when Picard receives a call from the Klingon homeworld. It is an invitation from Lursa and Bator to tea, which he accepts. They tell Picard that they're not like Dora, so how about deciding for Toral? Picard figures, no matter what, this gets bad. If he sides with Toral, they'll kill Gowron. If he sides with Gowron, they'll lead a revolt and overthrow Gowron. But, they add, we would also end the alliance with the Federation, so consider that as well. Picard says he'll issue his decision tomorrow. Surprise! He chooses Gowron. Yes, Toral is Duras' son, but Duras claimed the leadership died with him, and this kid has done nothing except be born. Toral and his sisters leave, with most of the council following them in support. Act 4. Time for Worf to swoop in. He pays a visit to Gowron. You need support. I want my honor back. Let's make a deal. Gowron says the four squadrons Worf and Kern offer won't be enough. Worf needs to convince Picard to take part in the battles that are bound to come. Worf says he can ask no more of the captain. Just then, two Klingon ships attack the Bortas. Gowron sends out a call for help to all loyal ships, and Picard, who is well within range, moves the Enterprise out of range. He is serious about this non-involvement thing. They may not have the Enterprise, but the Bortas does have the best tactician from the Enterprise. Even with the damaged ship, Worf figures out a way to blow up one of the attacking Klingon birds of prey. It looks like that second ship will get them, but wait! It's Captain Kern flying in to stand behind Gowron and defend the Empire. Finally, Picard gets to install Gowron and be done with this whole Arbiter of Succession business. And once installed, Gowron returns honor to the House of Moog, to Kern, 
and a wharf. Act 5. On board the Enterprise, Gowron tells Picard that Lursa and Bator are gathering forces to fight Gowron. He's the rightful leader, and so, per the alliance with the Federation, he formally requests help in the fight. Yeah, says Picard, this is an internal matter, so... no. Worf argues that the Duras family represent a grave threat to the security of the Federation, but still... no. Oh, and Worf leaves over. Stay on the Enterprise, since we're leaving this sector soon. Worf asks for an extended leave of absence, which is denied. So, he quits. He resigns his commission as a Starfleet officer. Worf's packing his things and already sporting a Klingon uniform. Picard doesn't try to talk Worf out of it exactly, though he does give him a chance to stay. But Worf must go. And a primary color guard sees him on his way. Or guards in primary colors, you get the idea. Worf is off to serve on the Bortos. And just like that, he's gone. Was there anything else? Oh yeah, the Romulans, working with Lursa and Bator, get the news that Picard has refused Gowron's request for help. Toral discounts him as a coward, though the shadowy female Romulan says not to discount Picard. Humans have a way of showing up when you least expect them. And finally, stepping out of the shadows, boy oh boy does she look a lot like Tasha Yar. It is now that you will want to try to remember how you spent your summer. Other prologue. We're on Kern's ship, and he's having his aft shield handed to him by two other birds of prey. While Worf is on board, turns out Kern's a pretty good tactician himself. He flies really close to a star, then pops it into warp, sucking some of the stellar matter up as a wall that destroys the pursuing Klingons. At Starbase 234, Picard is talking with Admiral Shanti. He gets why they can't get involved in the Klingon Civil War, but the Duras are winning, and if they're being aided by the Romulans... Here's Picard's plan. The Federation should set up a blockade that would spot any Romulan ships supplying the Duras. He proposes setting up a sort of tachyon net that would see even cloaked ships as they pass through it. The plan still has to be cleared by the Federation Council, but Admiral Shanti tells Picard to start assembling his fleet. Act 6. Getting permission to set up the blockade was easy. Setting up the blockade is difficult. There are only about 20 ships available, including some that don't have crews. Data will work on getting those ships staffed using Enterprise extras. Riker will command the Excalibur. Geordi will be his first officer. And we are rolling out at 0900 tomorrow morning. Data has a question, though. After 26 years of service, why is he not commanding one of the ships? Ashamedly, Picard hands command of the Sutherland to the android. On the Klingon homeworld, Kern is in the middle of a bar fight, which it turns out is just being in a bar. Klingons, am I right? Kern is actually drinking and fighting with the commander of the squadron that was chasing them yesterday. Worf doesn't get it, though Kern says, in battle, all of these Klingons will fight each other to the death for their causes. Here, they all celebrate as warriors. Now come on, Worf, grab a drink and punch somebody. Back at Starbase 234, Data presents himself to Lieutenant Commander Hobson as commander of the Sutherland. Hobson will be his first officer, or should be, except Hobson immediately requests a transfer. He doesn't think androids are suited for command and does not feel he would serve as a good first officer for Data. Request denied. Do your job. And with that, the fleet is underway. Act 7. Lursa and Bator are talking to the Romulan Tasha Yar double about their lack of supplies. The re-up from the Romulans hasn't arrived, plus the fleet of 20 ships from Starfleet is moving toward the Romulan-Klingon border. And no one on the Duras side has any idea what they're up to. 
In the chamber of the High Council, Gurn tells Gowron of another significant loss in the war. Gowron wonders how they're doing it. That sector was just put down three weeks ago. Kern figures the enemy might be getting help, though another Klingon challenges Gowron's leadership. Proving what a good leader he is, Gowron reasons with the usurper, showing him the error of his ways. <laughs> I'm kidding, he kills him. In a terrible sort of way. Worf's argument they need to band together, not fight each other. While he's physically trying to break up the fight, Gowron sneaks around and stabs the other guy. Honor's a funny thing. The blockade is in place, though the Sutherland is having two kinds of trouble, mechanical and personal, among the personnel. Hobson is still not happy with Data in command, and Data has to reassert his command. It takes the Romulans no time to spot the blockade's tachyon net. Romulan Tasha orders her fleet to find a way to thwart that. In the meantime, she'll have to back Picard off some other way. That starts by uncloaking her ship in front of the Enterprise and showing her face. And finally she gets a name, introducing herself as Commander Sela. Not Tasha Yar. Tasha was her mother. Act 8. Sela gives Picard 20 hours to recall the invasion fleet he's deploying along the Romulan border. In the conference room, Picard is kind of wigging out about who Sela is. Dr. Crusher says there's no record of Tasha having had a child, and besides, Sela is maybe a couple of years younger than Tasha was when Tasha died. Maybe she was cloned, maybe she was surgically altered... Whatever the case, Counselor Troy says Sela definitely believes that she is the daughter of Tasha Yar. Troy and Crusher leave, and Guinan comes in. So, Sela is Tasha's daughter. She doesn't know how she knows, but Guinan knows it. She thinks Tasha was a rumored survivor of the Enterprise C's loss at Narendra 3, when the ship went down defending a Klingon outpost from Romulan attack. Picard says that's impossible, which Guinan sort of concedes, except it happened. Tasha was on that ship, and Guinan thinks Picard sent her there, which means Picard is responsible for all of this. Now he'd like another word with Sela. Back at the perpetual bar fight, Worf and Kern are arguing about Gowron's leadership. Worf doesn't agree with some of Gowron's decisions, though Kern suggests Worf deal with it. He didn't want to follow Gowron. Worf made him. Now they're in it. So Klingon up. Kern leaves, and Worf is immediately attacked by a couple of Klingons. This isn't just good-natured bar fight attack, though. They knock him out and drag him away. Act 9. Turns out Picard is having his words with Sela on the Enterprise. They talk over the standoff at the border, though that's not what they really want to talk about. Sela confirms Guinan's suspicion. Tasha was on the Enterprise C, sent there by Picard himself. Well, an alternate timeline Picard from the future. Go back and watch yesterday's Enterprise if you don't know what I'm talking about. To save the few survivors from the Enterprise C, Tasha agreed to become consort to a Romulan officer. A year later, Sela was born. Four years after that, Tasha tried to escape with Sela. Thirty seconds after that, Tasha was killed. Really this time. Sela called out when she realized that Tasha was trying to take her away. That led to her mother's death and the death of all that was human within Sela. Picard doesn't know what to believe, but he does know this. If he has to kill Sela in a fight, he'll do it. Her lineage is of no concern. Back on the Klingon homeworld, it was Lursa and Bator who had Worf kidnapped. They have a proposition. Marry Bator. Back to all. We will, of course, kill Gowron. Then it's all honor and glory. What do you say? No? All right. Sela, who's been listening in, deems the Dura sisters' attempt at seduction a failure. She orders Worf turned over to a Romulan guard. Back at the blockade, all of this is taking far too long. Picard suggests that Gowron attack Lursa and Bator. They'll call for help from the Romulans. The blockade will spot the Romulan involvement and expose it to the Klingons, which will kill support for the Duras family among the Council. It's kinda sane, and it just might work. 
Gowron's in, and oh, by the way, Worf's been captured by the Duras. Bye! The battle begins. The distress call goes out. But the Romulans may prevail. They may have a way to disable the tachyon net set by Picard. There's also a hole opening up in the Federation blockade. It's a trick cooked up by Picard. Provide a weak point for the Romulans to pass through, then catch them in the act. But Sela figures out that it is a trick and won't fall for it. They'll aim their tachyon disruptor at the ship commanded by Data. Act 10. The Romulans fire off the tachyon disruptor, and sure enough, the net stops working for millions of kilometers around the Sutherland. Picard orders everyone to fall back to a different position where they'll reset the net. But Data stops the Sutherland. He thinks he can pick up on the Romulans thanks to their tachyon disruption. First Officer Hobson is doubtful, then argumentative, then insubordinate, saying that Data doesn't give a damn about the crew, and they're not just machines. Data tells Hobson to follow orders or he'll be relieved of duty. Hobson does, though he cannot stop questioning and arguing. Also, the Enterprise wants to know why they're not falling back with the rest of the fleet. Want to answer them? Hello? Data keeps giving orders. Picard keeps calling. Hobson keeps arguing. Though eventually Data's plan is carried out. And there's the proof Starfleet has been seeking. Evidence of Romulan ships headed to help the Duras sisters. Of course, once they're discovered, Sela sounds retreat, telling her subordinate to tell Lursa and Bator that they're on their own. Back aboard the Sutherland, Data has finally gained Hobson's respect. Was there anything else? Oh yeah, Lursa and Bator order Worf, who is still their prisoner, killed by the Romulan who'd been guarding him. Doesn't end that way, though. Worf wins in hand-to-hand combat, and the Dura sisters beam out, leaving their nephew, Toral, behind. Kern comes in and takes command of the situation, promising an unpleasant-sounding meeting for Toral with Gowron. The Starfleet ships are headed back to the Federation. Picard is headed to the Klingon High Council to give a full report on the parts of the war in which he participated. Data presents himself for disciplinary action. He did disobey the order to fall back earlier. Although it ended well, the ends cannot justify the means. Picard says, dude, are you kidding? That was so awesome. But in different words. At the Klingon High Council, Gowron thanks Picard for his report. Now, let's watch Worf kill Tural. That's Gowron's gift to Worf for all the trouble and honor the line of Duras has cost the House of Moog. Of course, Worf won't kill him. When Kern points out that it's the Klingon way, Worf says he knows, but it's not his way. Gowron offers to let Kern kill Tural, but Worf says no. Tural's life was given to Worf, and Worf spared it. Worf asks Picard for permission to return to duty. Picard agrees, and the two leave the High Council. The end. Bravo, Ken. First of all, a, a heroic effort. It was, your your it, honor is legendary. It was too yeah. long. It was too long. Well, <laughs> well it, let's talk about that for a moment, because uh, in the week leading up to the show, yeah. um, I got a lot of questions from people saying, hey, are you doing this as one part or two parts? And you and I, I would say more than any other show that we have done, yeah. you and I kept asking each other, what should we do? Yeah. What should we do? <laughs> in retrospect, I honestly think we should have done it as two different episodes. Hmm. And especially once you say in trivia that this mm-hmm. was not, I mean, look, so end of season three, we know they're not going to leave Picard as, right. as Borg. And maybe right. they would, but if they had, it would have you know stretched out for longer, but then it wouldn't have been a part two thing, right? And when you mm-hmm. say this is redemption and redemption part two, these are actually two different tales of redemption at this point. We could have easily left the end of season four and then next week you know, picked up with a whole new episode for season five, because yes, the war is continuing, but it's not like, you know, anybody was standing there saying fire. And then, you know, we go to black. 
right or it's right, not like right. you know Worf was literally hanging off the side of a cliff and we go to black mm-hmm. i mean it was it was oh wow Worf left the enterprise i mean they mm-hmm. definitely set up like okay so now there's going to be a war next season is it going to be one episode is it going to be 10 we don't know oh there's this person who looks like tasha yar she's obviously going to figure in somehow is that going to happen in the next episode or episodes down the road we don't know I mean, there's. I think we only did it as part two because, I mean, as as one big episode because that's how we did um, the menagerie. That's how we did best of both worlds. Right. Tradition. <laughs> See, might there actually be the reason we did it because yeah. these could easily be two different uh, two different episodes, mostly because they were. Yeah, they they feel very different uh, as well. I mean, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk about a kind of our final assessment later in the show, but they yeah. they do feel very different, and they they have some different plot lines going on. I kind of felt like, well, let let's get this chapter, you know, the the Sela stuff and the Gowron stuff out of the way yeah. because they are trying to tie up many loose ends here. Um, but then you also see pieces of these stories that maybe needed a little more exploration. So it, it's it's a really tough call. Yeah. Um, I, I'm usually very much in favor of getting anything that is related out of the way. Yeah, the you problem know, just is do it all at once. Then you we know. need to go ahead and do all the rest of Star Trek now. I, I think maybe we should. <laughs> because we'll do, we're, starting, we're starting to get to that place now where it's yeah, not the yeah. anthology show that it used to be, where you can just sit down and right. watch an episode. Like, wait, right. when so did they start week, dating? Wait a minute. Space Nine. Right. When did he get a kid? Wait, what? When did all yeah. this happen? Well, it turns out you actually... We're getting to the part in Star Trek where you really have to pay attention mm-hmm. to what happened last week. Not, I mean, right. not so much like... Not like The Sopranos or not like, you know, um, a show like that. I mean, it's it's not quite a nighttime soap or, you know, but uh, it's getting closer. Now, Mm -hmm. there are some weird things uh, in the episode. There are many. I'm confused. Like, Picard's like, hey, so listen, we're going to the Klingon homeworld. While we're there, why don't you just go ahead and restore your honor, Worf? Mm -hmm. You know, just go ahead and get your name back. Like, like he's picking up milk. Oh, if you pass the store, (laughs) pick me up a pack of smokes and your honor. Would you please? Um, yeah. You know, the one that you sacrifice to keep an entire civilization from destroying itself. That should be easy. But then later, Picard's like, all right, you got your honor back. Now let's go. We had other stuff to do. Yeah. Really? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And, and by the way, how's that wound healing in your hand after getting your honor back? Yeah. No kidding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're serious. It sucks, they're serious it sucks to be a Klingon and it sucks to become a Klingon again. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's terrible. Uh, Gowron informs us that women may not serve on the council. Yeah. Uh, now, now, we did meet uh, Worf's ex-girlfriend, and uh, she had definitely some some highly placed influence within the council. And remember, she was even offered a seat on the council if she would back Gowron. So maybe he was uh, already showing a little more liberal streak in that respect. Um, but what I do like here is that you have, um, you have women who are sort of manipulating things in the background. I'm reminded of shows like Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you watched that series on HBO. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, but yeah, that was a time when, yes, uh, only men could serve in the government. But they went to great efforts to show how everybody, and especially women, also had influence, even if they didn't officially serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was kind of a, a cool thing here to see happening in the background. Now, there was uh, there was a line here uh, that Picard says to Riker, there's too much history between the Duras family and the Romulans to discount the possibility, meaning the possibility of collusion. 
I thought I, you'll have to remind me here because I, I thought a lot of that Romulan collusion with Duras was kind of a secret. Um, if we go back to Sins of the Father, I, I was trying to remember who actually knew. Data kind of put together the, the well, for lack of a better word, the data about the pieces of what happened at Kittimer. Mm-hmm. But really, it wasn't spoken of at all after that or to anybody else. Well, no, but when you had the, was it two or three Klingons that were vying for control of the council in um, Reunion? Mm-hmm. Was it, I know it was Gauron and Duras. Was, there was a third one, wasn't there? But he was like, he was voted off the island immediately, I think. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Who cares about him? Because he was gone like an right. act two right. or something right. like that. Yeah. No, it, it, remember it was found out, though, that the Romulans like had some part in the explosion thing. It was like Romulan technology and only Romulans use it. So right, either, right, right. So either Duras was in collusion with the Romulans or he had been to get the technology. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, uh, there's a thousand people on the Enterprise, but that's a relatively small community. Eventually, it might get around. Sure. <laughs> I would <laughs> About think what so. happened at Kittimer. <laughs> Just don't tell yeah. anybody off the ship because, you know, we don't want the wheels coming off the Klingon wagon. Yeah, good point. Um, There's a funny bit in the target practice scene with Guinan and Worf. It's a fun scene. I, I do like it, and I like Guinan in it. But... um Whoopi, the actress, <laughs> so just separated from Guinan, the character, keeps gesturing and pointing with that phaser right at Worf. And I just keep hoping that because it is target practice, these are just totally benign beams. They're, they're not even set on stun. It's right. just like a flashlight at that point because she's just waving it around and she kind of crosses her arms and pointing it at him. And he's not even caring about that at all. It's a little haphazard use of a weapon with uh, life ending ability. Yeah, had she walked in with the rifle from behind the bar, then I would have been worried. My assumption is that, you know, she walks in and and sort of picks up a phaser once she's in the holodeck, which would make it a holodeck phaser, I would think. Oh, oh, so it's just a hollow phaser. Maybe. I don't know. Wow, interesting. All I'm right. trying to save a Klingon's life here, John. Give me some slides. Okay. <laughs> okay. But I, I hope that that's not how she handles weapons anyway. She was good about not actually killing anybody with the weapon hidden behind the bar. Yeah. So I yeah. don't know, dude. Yeah. She's been doing that since long before Worf was born. Oh, that's true. All right. Yeah. So it's a little, little gun safety, maybe. Um, man... I love Bob O'Reilly in this. I love Bob O'Reilly. He uh, he farms for his meals. He gets his back into his living. Anybody? What? Anybody? I don't know. Bobo Bobo O'Reilly. Sorry. Oh man, I Dude. thought you were a fan <laughs> like I am too. But no. But seriously, folks. But seriously. Um, I like him for the same reason that I like DeForest Kelly as Bones. Even when the scene isn't about him, mm-hmm. he is so present. He is so in it, and you see the gears turning in his head. It's also the eyes, because he, he's got the crazy eyes. Um, yeah, he does. And, and what's great is that Gowron is this sort of honorable character. He's the one that we are all sort of pulling for here. But he also kind of gives off the vibe that at any given time, he is plotting something really sinister. Well, he's crazy. He is. Yeah, I mean, that's really, I, I don't get the sense that he's plotting something sinister. I think it's just, he is like, he's always on nine or something, or mm-hmm. always on 11. I don't know. I mean, he is always lit to pop, mm-hmm. it seems, which is kind of a kind of a neat thing to see. And of course, you know, then of course, as you say, uh, Mr. O'Reilly has those crazy eyes, or he brings them yeah. to, the, uh, to the Klingon makeup anyway. 
Yeah. I do have to ask, though, how about the quick spend by Gowron in the transporter room? Worf's like, I want to talk to you. And Gowron mm-hmm. says, I don't talk to traders. And Worf's like, well, I'm not a trader. And Gowron's <laughs> like, oh, well, let's talk. well you know the klingons do uh just take a lot at face value they do indeed yes you know that it seems to be the way they handle things you're a traitor no i'm not well you are a klingon and you're honorable so i guess you wouldn't lie about whether or not you're a traitor even though it's established you're a traitor so yeah what do you want (laughs) okay yeah yeah it's that easy huh it's that easy yeah and they'll pretty much hear out anybody even if it ends in uh, in a fight or in death, I, I kind of love that Toval is such a little weenie, like like he's a tiny guy. <laughs> Wait, you know, to- Toval or Toral? To- oh, oh, I wrote it. Is he? It's I okay. No, it's, on the yeah, I know, I know. It's a thing. Almost wrote Tevya. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Toral. He is a little bit of a weenie. Yes, he is. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but, but it's pretty great because he, even then, you know, he's a guy who can just show up and, and these ladies are like, uh, here, he, he's got a claim. OK, we'll hear this out. Yeah, I even though we will make fun of you. I don't understand that at all, because as well, except it's the whole. Yeah, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. The whole mm-hmm. support thing for the Duras family and all that stuff. There's got to be a novel out there that explains to me why the Klingons care. Because sure. he just seems like an awful person from the word go. Unless it yeah. was, was it because his father supposedly tried to save people at Kittimer while Worf's father supposedly tried to kill people at Kittimer and succeeded, except it wasn't Worf's father, it was Duras' father. Right. But again, if that just came out, you know. Yeah, then, that's true. That should be end end of story right there. You would you think know? so, yeah. Why does that lead to civil war? Mm-hmm. <sighs> mm. <laughs> right. All right. Now, Ken, I may have come down pretty hard on the 24th century of Star Trek for not knowing how to party. Yeah. Uh, but the Klingons, they clearly know how to party. Yeah, I don't think I want to uh, party with you if that's, if that's your idea. Of the party. <laughs> no, no, uh, no arm wrestling uh, at the point Over of knives. knives. Right, yeah. yeah. You're just beating the crap out of each other for no better reason than, well, you're here yeah. and drinking. Although, did right. you notice he's actually not drinking with that squadron commander? Mm-hmm. They're both holding drinks, but then the squadron mm-hmm. commander throws his drink away. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you, you can only do so much. But that scene was interesting <laughs> in the idea that they hang out with their enemies. Yes. They, they just sort of like, well, it, it's sort of like that old cartoon, the Warner Brothers cartoon, where you, where you got the, the sheep dog and, and the sheep and they punch in and they punch out. That's and the then sheep, they, it's the sheep dog and the coyote or the sheep dog. Oh, the sheep dog and the coyote. Yeah. 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 And they, and they just, you know, battle all day long and then they clock out. Yeah. And then they're done. It kind of goes back to that thing that we talked about a few weeks ago about mm-hmm. enemies meeting, you know, decades later after a war and talking mm-hmm. over the experience that they shared, even though they stood on opposite sides of it. Um, the Klingons are just, you know, doing that as it's happening. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting in that scene to realize that Kern knows how to put duty aside, unlike his totally square brother Worf. Um, but it's kind of twisted. I, it, just in a weird way that that there's no sense uh, of the impact or importance of what is about to go down in the way of civil war, like literally could completely tear apart everything that that they supposedly honor. Kern's like, yeah, well, you know, just just one more road bump, <laughs> just one more thing to do. That's weird, though, actually, because I mean. That is actually very interesting because they talk about it being civil war, but there's no question that when this is all over, there's going to be a high council Mm -hmm. and that there are going to be people who are going to support the high council. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe there's some understanding that there will always be opposition as well. It's actually not like the Klingon Empire is going to dissolve. I mean, the the closest it comes to that is when Curran's like, kill them all. 
Yeah. <laughs> like every yeah, one yeah. of them is useless. Let's kill them all. But then he says, but then we'll put our own people on the high council. So, I mean, the, 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 the structure, the framework is going to stay. It's just the, uh, it's just the players that are going to change. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And willing to destroy each other over that. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about some Romulan stuff. Uh, that Federation blockade, mm-hmm. it is inspired. Mm-hmm. It, it is a brilliant piece of passive resistance, um, except that they're in space. Yeah. Um, and I kept expecting the Romulans to say, we found a weakness. We'll go around them. <laughs> yeah, good point that. Um, yeah. And by the way, how did Sela know that the Sutherland was commanded by Data? Yeah, they know a lot of stuff. Okay. That they shouldn't have known, it seems to me. Yeah. Oh, what look was- at this. Picard turned down Gowron. How'd you hear? <laughs> right. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they know a lot of stuff. Um, I, I still question, though, how useful Guinan is when it comes to major life-altering facts of history. It, because her whole game is just, I know because, well, you see, I know, mm-hmm. even if I have no explanation or evidence. So just go with what I say. Oh, I think she actually knew very well. What I thought was funny was her telling Picard, this is all your fault, even though... Yeah, well, that was interesting. It was alt-timeline Guinan who told both Picard and Tasha that Tasha did not belong on the Enterprise Day. It was actually all Guinan's fault. (laughs) Right. But but see, Picard would have no memory of hearing that original story from Guinan from Yes Enterprise. Right. Apparently, neither would Guinan. But what's interesting is she says, "This, this is on you, dude. Yeah, right. And right. I'm, I'm thinking she actually does remember, but she wants to make yeah, sure yeah. that it's not on her. Yeah. She can't yeah, the, even. So she's like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is your fault. Yeah, this is all your fault. And uh, we're done here. I have no more information for you. So I'll just leave you with that nugget and walk out the door. Gotta go. <laughs> See. <laughs> right. Lursa and Bator, they, they failed to seduce Worf. Yeah. Because let's face it, he really is the last guy who would turn. <laughs> you know, that, that's just a poor choice in, in who you're going to pick uh, to try to do that to. Why does he not freak out when he sees Sila on that monitor at the end of that scene? Hmm. It was kind of far across the room. And he's staring right at it. Yeah, but maybe he needs glasses and doesn't want to tell anybody. Okay. Maybe it's an embarrassing okay. thing. He spends too, much time, over the, thing, spends too yeah. much time over the console. His eyes are kind of shot now. Mm-hmm. So he's like, oh, who's the blonde person yelling at everybody? <laughs> right. <laughs> Taking out of context. I mean, you could remove that. It's kind of a useless scene, actually. Yeah, well, uh, yes. Especially because, I mean, I know I joked twice in the recap, but at the end, it's like, oh, is there anything else? Oh, yeah, Worf's captured. Right. Maybe we should yeah. get him uncaptured somewhere mm-hmm. along the way. And also, yeah. I'm reminded of of, uh, of the um, the James Bond villain talk on Saturday Night Live. Oh, sure. When she says, kill him, what you do is you take out your phaser, your disruptor, whatever you have handy, and kill him. Right. I mean, there should have been no time for him to, like, if you're close enough to drop poison down a thread (laughs) into his throat, (laughs) you're close enough to shoot him with a disruptor. But the Romulans have interesting ways. They want to see things go interesting ways, because ultimately, at the end of this, we know that the Romulans will, will rely on the old favored Romulan strategy, which is uh, we'll just sneak away. Romulan's out. Twice the show is in a normal week. But does it bring with it twice the depth?
we hit on this very briefly. Uh, I thought it was interesting, as you did, that Picard is kind of pushing for Worf to clear his name. Quickly, quickly. (laughs) Right? And now, but I wondered, is that all just because the truth is so important to Picard? Or is it because he thinks that the lie has somehow affected Worf in ways that even Worf doesn't know? Uh, Does he think that Worf is hiding from the truth? These are all sort of rhetorical questions, you know. But ultimately, what does it matter if Worf is okay with never going back to Kronos? You know, because as you said... Picard's interested, and then he's just not very interested. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we always knew that... I mean, once we knew that Kern was still out there, and once they had made the pledge that they were going to do this, then you know we're going to see it at some point. Mm-hmm. And so, honestly, that's why it felt like it was important. Yeah. Because we had this story idea hanging out there. Right. Um, well, let's go ahead and do that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So so we have to. Um, and speaking of Picard, we get kind of a new and nuanced look at the policy of non-interference. Um, Picard seems determined, in part one at least, to have no influence at all, no matter what the stakes are. And it it seems obvious that he can't pick sides in a war, but it also seems like the Federation and the Klingons have been allies for a long time now, and he knows the Romulans are colluding somewhere, somehow, um, because he wouldn't have brought it up at the beginning anyway. But then it's just sort of like, you know what, I'm going to throw up my hands and say, I can't bother to have a non-interference policy anymore. Um, This is maybe a tricky area only because there is a value to the Federation and Klingon alliance at this point. Um, But I I don't even know that bringing up non-interference was even valid at a certain point. Oh, I think it was because it is an yeah. inter- it, it's an internal conflict. Sure, sure. I mean, think about a private little war. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing was we're not allowed to get involved in this whole thing, you know. And and it turns out some people have weapons and other people don't have weapons that are as advanced. And when they thought it was possible that they were just advancing on their own, there's really nothing Kirk can do, even though Kirk very much cares about the people who are losing. But then once they well, find out, oh well, there's Klingon involvement, so now. There's been involvement at that point, and so then it's incumbent upon the, uh, the Enterprise to get involved. I understood, but in Private Little War, remember, this was a non-warp society. This was a non-advanced society. They didn't even know of the Federation, because when Kirk was there originally, he was just there as, like, some villager yeah. <laughs> who was hanging out, you know. This it, is a little bit different, because it, you, you've got a long, long history of involvement on both sides, well, except, I mean, you said nuanced earlier. I mean, this is sort of a, yeah. a, a this is that. I mean, this this is still yeah, a, a yeah, society yeah. theoretically evolving or advancing on its own or changing on its own. If side mm-hmm. A hates side B and they fight, but they're both still, you know, part of that one whole, you just kind of have to let that play out. Otherwise, you're just backing a regime at that point. Yeah, And then who yeah. knows whether you're right or wrong. And that's something that in the 24th century, you know, <laughs> people from Earth may hopefully have learned. What, what we'll do is we'll just stay out of this and let it sort of sort itself out. But then once you find out that there's actually another party outside that's propping up one side, then, I mean, you can actually look at that as, as happening to the detriment of the society that you were trying to stay, you know, to let it sort of evolve on its own. It's not evolving sure, on sure. its own at that point. So then you kind of have to stop the other power from uh, messing with it, too. 
Yeah, well, and it is a couple of times here that, uh, you know, we, we guess that Picard actually is struggling himself with the idea of the ends justifying the means. It's not just that last scene with Data and discussing what Data did, but, you know, as you pointed out, Picard releasing the information about Kittimer, it's like, well, okay, <laughs> you know, the, the ends would justify that means, even though we're going to have a talk about it. Even though I'll, I'll express to you how I feel like this is probably the wrong thing to do, we should probably just go ahead and do it anyway. Well, no, the wrong thing to do was for Worf to use his position. No, of course. Right. Of course. Yeah. To sort of subvert the whole thing. Yeah. It's not subversion if it's, you know, just out there for everybody to use. Although sure. it's kind of funny because, yes, if they had gone ahead and put that out, as you say, a couple of seasons ago, then the Klingon Empire would be a different place right now. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In fact, why did they even have to go to war at that point, now that I think about it? Hmm. We're just going to put yeah, this out right, here for right. everybody. Yeah. Okay, so just blast that down to the Klingon homeworld, and everybody mm. will be like, hey, Toral. Yeah, pretty soon everybody's retweeting that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. OMG! <laughs> right? Duras family traitors, you know, and then, uh-huh. yeah, it's all over. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a prosperous reign for Gowron, beginning without a war. Yeah, hashtag not on my watch. (laughs) Speaking of the prosperous reign for Gowron. Yes. uh, It takes him zero time to be corrupted by power, it seems to me, in a way. Mm. What Gowron wants from Picard is muscle, a pledge to back his installation above and beyond the role of Arbiter. And Picard's like, hey, we're going to go by Klingon law. And Gowron, who was like the law and order Klingon, he was the tradition Klingon, he was the unsullied Klingon. He was the one who wasn't, you know, didn't have all those, you know, strings tugging at him uh, from the established power structure. Uh, Gowron's like, yeah, nah, I don't think Klingon law is going to be enough here. We need to go beyond. Mm. We need to go beyond Klingon uh, to to keep the Klingon uh, empire uh, going. Uh, Worf asks for his family on her back, and Gowron says, can't be done. The grasp of Duras reaches out from the grave. Much of the council is still loyal to Duras, and Gowron needs the council's support to survive. I thought the reason that they went with Gowron... Was because he was the honorable Klingon. And yeah, now he's he, like, he yeah, but, you know, yeah. it's it's and it's not. I mean, again, it's another one of those, you know, burn the village to save it kind of things. I mean, Gowron mm-hmm. could easily have had the shortest reign in a Klingon high council. Right. Mm-hmm. He goes in. He's like, yeah, nuts to all you supporters of Duras. And then they gather around him like uh, Brutus and his pals mm-hmm. around Caesar mm-hmm. and just, you know, kill him immediately. But I'm sort of I'm sort of bothered that like he's not even a politician yet, and he's already wise to the political game, and he's playing it because he has to. This doesn't seem like it's going to be the new golden era for the Klingon Empire initially. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe that's just part and parcel for how Klingon politics works. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit cynical to say that well, they're just sort of all corrupt, and and they sort of all will fall into that trap. Maybe Gowron is the least worst option. In that respect. And here again, we come to the question of here again, I think, honestly, we come to the question of Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek versus everybody who takes up Star Trek after him. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a white knight, you want your white knight to be a white knight. You don't want your white knight to turn gray the second he actually comes on screen. Right. Mm -hmm. He's supposed to be that thing that's going to make everything better. And so now let's go tell some other stories. Instead, we've got this story where it's like, oh, it turns out everything's not going to be better. And, oh, he's got feet of clay. And, you know, the problem is I've got feet of clay. And I don't want to watch TV about other people that have feet of clay necessarily. I want to watch watch people, you know, who are going to win. And, yeah, he's eventually going to win, but he has to be just like everybody else to do it. 
that that is true. But remember, I mean, we're talking about Klingons here. You know, we're, we're talking about this other group that yeah. is set up in contrast to the Federation. You know, we've always said the Enterprise is us. The Federation is us. Mm-hmm. And as much as we strive to be better than our our base impulses and, and we try to figure out how we are going to be better. The reality is we may run into people who don't hold those same values. And in this case, we've run into Klingons who don't have those same values. So is it okay for us then to say, well, we will support that least worst option. You know, Gowron has many positive traits, but he's also playing that political game, which is really, you know, again, we go back to Picard, not our business. Right. We have to wash our hands of how they govern themselves. Don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about in-universe. I'm talking about as writers. Sure. I'm talking about sure, as the sure, people sure. who are guiding Star Trek at this point. What Galron was supposed to represent. And, I mean, you can say, yes, the Enterprise is us and other people are other people, but sometimes other people are us as well, right? Like, hey, yeah, yeah. you're the stupid people who are chasing each other because one's half white and half black and the other one's half black and half white. I mean, yes, yeah. the Enterprise is us at that point, but then so are... Uh, the two people chasing each other and let that be your last battlefield. Gowron is the promise that we can be better. Gowron is the promise that no matter the corruption, no matter the difficulty, things can change and things can get better. It's like when, you know, somebody who's supposed to be the champion of the people gets elected and the second he gets elected, he gets subverted. Right. And and, and in this story, it would have been better. I mean, it wouldn't have been as good a story. It would have been a boring story if he had gotten there. And he's like, so what we need to work on is sanitation. (laughs) It would have been terrible if all he was was an administrator. The only thing is, uh, to tell the ripping good yarn, then you have to go ahead and and make Gowron not as corrupt as Duras, certainly, but as susceptible. And that's kind of a that's kind of a drag. Did we skip to the uh, messages, morals, and meanings part? I no, no, no. But, it, but but I am I am a little bit curious because when I watched this for the first couple of times, I, I did wonder how you'd react because I, I still like that conversation we had originally about do we just let the Klingon Empire burn to the ground because there's nothing honorable at the heart of this supposed honorable uh, institution? Yeah. So were you? Were you still less satisfied with the conclusion of this, with, with putting Gowron in place and, and how this played out? They did manage to avoid a civil war. Now, there was still blood spilled. No, they didn't. Man- they, no, still, they, they still had a civil war, I think. Well, they, 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 they just didn't, little, tear, it didn't tear the whole thing apart. Yeah, but yeah. They, they had an abbreviated civil war. Well, know? we have no idea how long. We actually have no idea how long the war was going on, do we? I think it was three weeks at least between the end of season four and the beginning of season five. Because Picard mm-hmm. says for the last three, so maybe it's not even weeks. Yeah, I want to say it was like a three-week time period, though, where he's like, all of a sudden, the line of Duras is is, is kicking everybody else's behind. I figured yeah. they got to be being supported by the Romulans. Point being, this was not like one episode or one normal episode. Sure, anyway. sure. It was several yeah. weeks that seemed to have passed. Yeah. Am I? I mean, Galran ends up being seems to end up being honorable. I'm just bothered that his starting position is got to play the game. Yeah, the way this story is written, he does have to play the game because otherwise he would have been killed the second Picard left the High Council. The second he walked mm-hmm. away from that room, Gowron's dead. I just mm-hmm. kind of wish this wasn't the story that we were telling because, yes, I want I want some of our stories to have happy endings. I want some of our stories to not be you know intertwined with 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 danger and intrigue. I want to. I mean, Star Trek was set up on the belief that we can get past all of it. Yes, And then if yeah. we introduce somebody yeah. who is supposed to be the representative of, hey, look, and they can get past all of it, too, uh, except they can't. 
which probably means neither can we. Mm. That, that's sort of where I was. So was I as dissatisfied as I was with uh, with the one where Worf lost his honor? No. I, yeah. it did. I mean, it did immediately show up to me that it's like, oh, look at Gowron playing the same game everybody else is. Yeah. Well, I, I still I got high hopes with this Gowron guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's going places. Don't yeah. Maybe it's yeah. maybe it's just the crazy eyes. It could be, <laughs> you could be that. It could be that. Let's talk about Worf a little bit here, um, because we also return to the story of the awkwardness of Worf being sort of a Klingon fundamentalist, really, really missing the nuance of what it means to be a Klingon. Mm-hmm. Guinan, I love it. She calls him out. Klingons laugh. You don't. <laughs> so this sort of idea of nature versus nurture being a very tough game reflected again in Sila brings us to her story and she tells this very interesting tale about her human slash Romulan upbringing. I can't imagine though that other Romulans would have been cool with her father taking a human wife and having a half human child. It just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would fly on Romulus. And it depends on how big he is. I don't mean large. I mean it depends I, on how, yeah. how, <laughs> how big in the how how high in the org chart he is. I mean mm-hmm. he I mean she could also be a spoil of war. Mm-hmm. Tasha would be in a warrior culture. That wouldn't necessarily be a thing that would be you know frowned upon. Now, how it is that she ends up sort of ascending the ranks is sort yeah, of is, is was... a different question. Yeah, I don't think anybody would have a problem with him having a concubine that was from a conquered people because that totally seems like something the Romulans would be into. I think that uh, what I'm thinking is that as hard a time as Spock had on Vulcan, yeah, I think it would be even more difficult for young Sela growing up on Romulus. Yes, that that yeah. I that I'm, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, I have yeah. no problem believing that he got you know to marry Tashi Yar. I I do have a problem believing that their child right is suddenly somebody high up in the uh, in the ranks. Although she did prove her Romulusness. Romulanness as <laughs> yes. a Romulanity yeah, yeah. Uh, as a four-year-old turning in her mother to the state. Yeah. yeah. Wow. How about mm-hmm. the decision to go ahead and really kill Tasha Yar this time, but still not have it happen on screen? Yeah, right. <laughs> Is there not yeah. a, a chance that we're actually going to meet Tasha at the, some the, point. The three deaths of Tasha Yar. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Armus Armus mm-hmm. is somewhere going, what do I have to do? <laughs> When I wondered about Guinan's discussion, actually, and again, suddenly, I said the bird of prey is my favorite ship in Star Trek. Maybe there's a little bit of Klingon in me. I don't know. Mm. I was wondering if what Guinan was telling Worf was not, man, you don't know how to be Klingon, but nobody knows how to be anything mm. initially, right? She's like, man, it's got to be tough for your kid. It's got to be tough for you, too. Don't worry about not knowing how to be a Klingon because you're just learning now, same as your son is. I mean, she actually says to him, you know, uh, you don't laugh. And he says, I'm a Klingon. She says, Klingons laugh. Uh, well, I don't feel like laughing. What does that say about you? Well, I don't always feel like a Klingon or something. Or I don't feel like most Klingons, something along those lines. Yeah. And, and there's not one way for everybody to be, maybe, it seemed to me. Or if you get to a place where you don't know what you're doing, you're really just like everybody else. I was wondering if it was if it was a discussion that could be applied to, you know, where all of us are at any given time. I mean, the first time we come across a situation that we don't know how to deal with, okay, well, that's not going to be the last time that's going to happen to you, so don't don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Well, I kind of like that as a message then, hmm. and, and leave, it, leave it to Guinan. 
to uh, to bring that message. Leave it to Guinan. Yeah. Worst spinoff idea ever. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. And I do want to talk about data here as well, because um, I feel like we kind of got short shrift on that storyline with him uh, in command. Um, he's been with Starfleet for 26 years, he mm-hmm. says. Um, is that how long it takes to become a lieutenant commander? Uh, he has had command of the Enterprise before. Yes, he has. Um, seems like there are people around him who are ascending rank much more quickly. Um, you know, Jordy. Jordy started out, and and he needed uh, a promotion. And I just pictured Data there in the wings, going like, "Hey, good job. Glad you got that promotion." You know. <laughs> um, so were his feelings hurt when he didn't get command of a ship? Um, I guess we could. Uh, maybe explore in a different context whether or not he had his feelings hurt. And uh, and what was wrong with Hobson as a commander? He has the same rank as Data. They're both <laughs> lieutenant commanders. Well, Hobson would have been commander if Data hadn't been like, why don't I get a ship? Mm-hmm. And then Picard's like, oh, okay, I get to make that happen. Right. <laughs> Here you go. Take, uh, take, uh, take this other one. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> he's looking down and happens to see that name. Right, right. Hmm. And uh, and by the way, where was Lieutenant Commander Hobson uh, when we screened like uh, the Corbomite maneuver or um, the Corbomite uh, maneuver original series? Uh, yeah. uh, Rather than Commander Balance of Terror, Balance of Terror. Yes. So okay. it, it, where, where was he when we screened all of those? Huh? You know, he wasn't even yeah. born yet, dude. That was 23rd century. He's a 24th century kind of guy. But he's been through Starfleet. They have to watch all the old episodes. Well, you would think so. You would think they should anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he should really do some study about uh, Lieutenant Bailey. Um, and, and man, uh, there was no sensitivity training for this guy. He mm-hmm. just assumes, you know, certain stereotypes are only good for certain I, types of duty. Here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing, though. You say certain types and stereotypes and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. As far as we know, there are two androids like Data. There's mm-hmm. data and there's lore, and 50% of them are homicidal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing, though, is these androids are just going to be stories. It's not like 1984 where, you know, Big Brother is showing up on everybody's TV screen for a little bit and, you know, reminding them what's what. And even if that were the case, data would not be the thing that would be showing up on all their screens. Well, but, but here's my problem with that. So Data is a decorated officer. We, mm-hmm. we even had a whole episode about, mm-hmm. you know, what his rights are within Starfleet and the, the awards that he's gotten. Yep. Um, he's kind of a celebrity. He's sort of known throughout Starfleet. Okay. Uh, he has taken command of the Enterprise before. Yeah. Um, so even just within Starfleet, I would think that it would be pretty well known what this guy has accomplished, even if we know that he's... An android, that's fine. My problem with Hobson is that he then goes on this other list of what types are appropriate for what jobs. Well, you wouldn't put a Klingon as a ship's counselor. Hey, you might. (laughs) Might depends on the ship. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, this guy. This guy probably thinks that Boleans are only good for being barbers. That that's how narrow-minded I think. I thought you thought that Boleans were only good for being barbers. Well, maybe that's a prejudice I have to get over. Maybe, and maybe you should. Now, here's the thing. Yeah. You talk about all the, all the episodes that Hobson hasn't seen of Star Trek. Maybe yeah. he did watch Galileo 7. Oh, okay. Spock should have been good at command. Logically, mm-hmm. he knew exactly what to do. And boy, did he muff that up. I mean, it ended up being okay. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he, he, was, he was really bad at command for a while. I'll tell you honestly what this, what this got me thinking about. 
was what importance we ascribe to and should ascribe to uh, um, the works of man or things that are made, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Hobson says the crew of the Sutherland aren't just machines. Mm-hmm. To a machine that is alive, according to the Federation and according to Starfleet, right? Right. You get the sense that had he had an army of datas, he'd have had no problem using them as cannon fodder. But then again, why wouldn't he? We talked about... Well, I mean, first of all, we talked about lore. I mentioned him a minute ago. Every time that we've come mm-hmm. across an artificial intelligence, uh, there's been a problem. Vol, Landru, Corbybot, it tends to go very poorly. And now there's this one who's going to lead him into battle. So mm. that struck me as, I mean, I kind of get it. I mean, the two things that I wondered about, honestly, with this whole thing are how much faith should Hobson have in the system that is rank in Starfleet? Especially because, as you pointed out, they share the same rank. Captain Picard is a captain. Captain Picard put Data in charge of the Sutherland, but Data has the same rank that Hobson does. And Hobson was, like, doing his own thing five minutes before Data got there. Right. And then, you know, the whole artificial intelligence thing to boot. I mean, you talk about sensitivity training, but it's not like there are ten Datas or a hundred Datas. You say he's famous... Yeah, so is George Clooney. There's a pretty good chance I'm never going to meet him, and I don't know, you know, what I would do at that point. Sure, I've heard of him, but I don't know, you know, is that somebody I should listen to? Or, or you know, name another famous person, because that's really what you're talking about here. Oh, I've heard of that guy, so I'm going to automatically follow him? Hmm, not necessarily. The other thing that I wondered about, though, is what importance we should or what importance he would place on a manufactured or made person, right? Hmm. We talked about how unimportant things become in a society where anything you want can just be like, you know, push a button and you got it. Yeah, right. And and yet Data has earned his personhood in the eyes of of, of people and, you know, and the people he knows in Starfleet. But he's a thing in Hobson's mind. And things don't mean a thing (laughs) in the 24th (laughs) century. I mean, I'm not saying... Obviously, I'm not saying I believe in that. I'm the guy who says that we shouldn't call it artificial intelligence, but manufactured intelligence. (laughs) Because to call it artificial automatically demotes it, and one day we may have to answer to these things. Well, but here's the thing, though. I mean, Hobson has grown up in this world where you've got super intelligent, maybe even conscious computers, like the one that runs the Enterprise and presumably the same type that runs the Sutherland. Mm-hmm. So he's already answering to a computer and relying on a computer to do incredibly important things for him to be able to do his job. You know, th- this is just an adjunct to that computerized system, to that that manufactured intelligence that is already uh, got a, a huge level of influence on what he does. Yeah, except you know? they don't seem to have any idea how much they actually serve the computer or how dependent they are on the computer. Yeah, I mean that's always that's the thing that we've talked about. That's the thing that they've never seemed to that they've never seemed to actually acknowledge. It's I mean it's going to be a difficult process. That's probably mm-hmm. a good way to put it. I mean, going if you ever end up with a machine that is as intelligent or almost as intelligent as a person, it's going to be a difficult process. And what they're telling us in this 24th century tale is almost nobody's ever met one. And when they have, it's almost always been disastrous. Yeah. And so, oddly enough, I'm willing to cut Hobson a tiny bit of slack because as far as he's concerned... Somebody's just put a toaster in the captain's chair and said, all right, follow that.
with the Romulans scurrying away. Again. And with Gowron at the head of the Klingon High Council. It is time for us to see where Redemption, and, Redemption 2, leave us. Well, since we did it as one episode, I guess I put it to you as one question. Redemptions, John. <laughs> Does it <laughs> all hold the up? Redemptions. All the redemptions. You can have all the redemptions if you answer these questions. The questions, of course, that we ask about messages, morals, and meanings, and whether or not the whole thing stands the test of time. Uh, does this episode, do these episodes hold up as far as you're concerned? Well, I think, again, it's a little bit conditional, the, the answer has to be. Uh, there is a great deal of payoff here if you've been paying attention to the Klingon saga so far. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's the kind of thing that floats your boat, then great. I'm definitely invested in Worf's character arc. Um, I, I think the more we learn about him and his sort of internal struggle, I think that's great. I, I can't help that there's something funny to me about Klingons, <laughs> you know, like uh, the, the fact that we cut to this bar fight, everybody's going insane and just sharing drinks and, and they're just sort of all warriors all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of fighting and I keep wondering who comes along to clean this stuff up, who built the buildings they're in, who are their scientists, <laughs> who, uh, who does the laundry, you know, and it would be very honorable laundry, but but somebody has to do all of that stuff. So there, there is this monoculture that is sort of funny to me. Um, Wait, I love the idea that that the Klingon society is actually run by philosophers. It's actually run by philosophers <laughs> yeah. and scientists, but the loud ones uh, are the warriors, and everybody else is just like just just let them. Just yeah, let them. They're just they're hiding somewhere else. We're, yeah, we'll just, we'll really take care of things. Right. Just let them play. Right. <laughs> um, there are some missed opportunities with these stories, like with uh, Data's command. I, I feel like that could have been a much bigger deal. Um, and in fact, there was some talk about making that its own story, but mm. it kind of got injected into uh, part two of Redemption here. Um, but taken as a whole, I think it's very good. Part one is the weaker part, unless you are really interested in Klingon politics. Because that one is the setup and there's just a lot of talk. Part two is weaker in that it feels a little scattered because there's a lot going on. It feels like there are a lot of threads they're trying to follow up on. But there definitely is more action. It is a better paced episode than part one. Mm. Um, now, like you said, they, they do feel very separate. You could actually take them on their own. Uh, and with a little tweaking, they would just stand alone on their own perfectly fine um overall i'm going to say yeah it, it holds up this is sort of an integral part of the overall uh story that is star trek and it's an integral part of understanding what these sort of big statements are about you know what the federation is and what they do and then who the klingons are and what they do so we're, we're setting this much bigger stage and we're expanding that star trek universe a bit more uh with this episode or these two episodes uh, um, so they they have their weaknesses. They they really do. Whether you look at them individually or look at them as a whole, but um, but overall, again, I'm going to give it that sort of conditional pass. How about you? I would say the answer to does it hold up depends on what you want them to do. This is, I mean, as you say, this is part of setting up the storytelling Star Trek. You know, the one that's going to mm-hmm. have wars and it's going to have lines of families and it's going to have things that come back. 
uh, maybe as much as two seasons later. It's defining a universe that they're going to work in. And they've told a good story here. And they're laying the groundwork for more good stories. So if that's what you're looking for, this definitely works. If, on the other hand, you're looking for the Star Trek that is the mirror that we hold up to ourselves to make sure that we're doing you know, right and good and proper going forward, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we do get moments in that. But this is less about morality tale and more about storytelling. So does it hold up as a good story? Yeah. As a good bit of storytelling? Yes. If you like Klingons? Absolutely. If you like Romulans? Why? (laughs) Yeah. There's not enough of the Romulans yet. I really do hope, honestly, that we learn more about the Romulans at some point, because you're right. Ever since the the end of season one, it's just sort of been, they're the boogeyman. Yeah. But they, and not the fun boogeyman that Casey and the Sunshine Band sang about. No, that was the best boogeyman. Yeah, they're the boogeyman who's like, ah, we're going to get you. Not today, Mm -hmm. but we might get Mm -hmm. you at some point. So, you know, Um, if you like the Klingons, though, this is definitely for you. But if what you like is let that be your last battlefield, the Corbin might maneuver measure of a man. You know, if you if you like the the sort of ah the best that society can be or, oh, let's make sure society is never like that. Uh, we're getting we seem to be getting further and further away from those things. So depending on yeah. what you want your Star Trek to do, either it holds up or it doesn't. And it, which is not to say that it's devoid of message. I mean, as we discussed, we're back to wondering, you know, what good a society built on X is if X has to be removed to sustain that society. Klingon society is built on honor, but it's held together by corruption. Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. surrounds the line of Duras. And even before he's installed to lead the council, Gowron is beholden to that corruption for survival. Uh, given the chance to do the right thing to restore Worf's honor, he'll do it, but you got to give me something in return. And <laughs> Worf almost even seems to fall into that. I mean, we, you talk about Worf being more Klingon than Klingon. Yeah. I'd say he's just standard issue Klingon at this point. He goes to Curran and says, look, Gowron's our guy, and we got to back our guy because we're Klingons, and that's what Klingons do. And Curran's like, all right, but we're going to blackmail him. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's kind of Klingon, right? Like, uh, you need my help, and I'm going to give you my help because you're my leader as long as you give me something that I want. And I don't know if that makes him more Klingon or less Klingon. But, well, uh, I, I feel like, you know, ever since we met John Colicos as the first Klingon in the original series and mm-hmm. uh, Aaron Diversi, you know, the, these are sort of like conniving, manipulative. Um, honor wasn't even a word for them. Yeah, well, so. we sort of redefine the Klingons, though, in the movies, right? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not saying that that's not canon. I get what you're saying. At the same time, we, we've changed who the Klingons are as, mm-hmm. as the years mm-hmm. have gone by. Oh, sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I still think that, you know, given what we've seen of all these other Klingons, it, it is interesting that, you know, you've got a guy like Gowron or you've got the Duras family and maybe they're involved in this very complex web of corruption and uh, backstabbing, literal and figurative mm-hmm. um, but then you, you sort of have the rank and file Klingons and and you wonder if if that's what is keeping all of this together. But then I, I think the, the point is well taken. It's a great question. Is it worth keeping it together if it's this dishonor that is keeping this supposed honorable society together? Especially um, when I mean, when honor is what your society is built on. I yeah, mean, look, yeah. if, you're, if you're the Ferengi and your society is built on. 
Yankee traderism. What, what would you want to call it? If, you, if your society is built solely on capitalism, and if you don't cloak that as anything else, if what you're about yeah. is making the deal, make the deal. I mean, that's fine. Right. And there's no loss of honor because what you did was make the deal because that's what you've said you're going to be. If, on the other hand, you set yourself up as we are, we are planet honor, but, mm-hmm. you know, not really. But we want everybody to think that. Yeah, that's where it gets questionable. If honor is what you're built on, then you have to be honorable. Otherwise, you have no society at that point. You just have a bunch of buildings that people go to. No, and I do feel like that's a very Star Trek message, you know, uh, Star Trek from the beginning. Uh, as we talked about with Corbin White Maneuver, as we often say, it's, you know, well, if you say that you are this thing, how do you act then to be that thing? Right. Um, so that is that is a very Star Trek message in here. Which, which, again, don't don't think that I think that that is the easiest thing in the world. It's definitely a difficult thing for, you know, it's definitely a difficult sure. thing as you go through life. But if your storytelling is supposed to be a morality tale, then, you know, you kind of want the moral to be. Well, yeah. moral. <laughs> right. There is that. Yeah. yeah. I would say there's some other ideas that are explored uh, here, you know, to one degree or another, you know, do the ends justify the means where, where data is concerned? He gets off easy. Um, it, it was a tougher call for Picard when it came to Worf. Um, interestingly, it was not following orders that caused friction between data and Hobson. So maybe Data kind of filed that away as, um, oh, well, I would reprimand a guy like Hobson for this. Therefore, I need to be reprimanded by my captain. But hey, guess what? My captain thinks it's cool. (laughs) So good for me thinking outside the box. Um, And then uh, uh, Picard does remind us of that line. I was only following orders and put a nice little uh, historical button on that. Um, Maybe another thing here, sometimes retreat or restraint is the best option. Worf has learned that. Picard talks to Worf about that, saying that, hey, your compassion is, is, you know, that human part that makes you unique and makes you who you are and makes you someone that I respect and want to have on my crew. And Worf expresses that again at the end of the episode. Um, and, and I like how they, again, put a button on that, not just saving the life of that little weenie Klingon, but him telling Gowron and telling Kern, no, 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 that, that life was given to me. Therefore, mm. I get to say what happens. And what I say is he gets to survive. Um, so Worf is back expressing that part of himself again. So in that case, retreat or restraint or compassion kind of save the day, or at least save that little weenie until we see him again. <laughs> so. <laughs> so there are a couple of if not messages at least a couple of ideas floated in there as well Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment executive producer Rod Roddenberry find out more at roddenberry.com for more exciting Star Trek podcasts be sure to check out Trek FM that is trek.fm and for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion be sure to visit trekmovie.com next week Darmok Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Picard failed to mention my favorite ship in the fleet, Bodie McBoatface. 
I would pay a few quad loose to see that ship in a future Star Trek series. And transmission.